This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Bohr. I'm one of your hosts. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler. Hey, Holly. Hey, Robert. This week, we talk with Marlena Graves about justice, love, and becoming yourself by forgetting yourself uh, based on her book and things like that. But first, Holly, how are you this week? I am doing great. I'm great. It is like cloudy and gray out and kind of starting to actually feel like fall. So I'm doing yeah. all right. What about you? Yeah. How are you doing today? Good. Yeah. Yeah. And enjoying some of the slightly cooler weather as well and having a lot of good stuff to read recently as uh, listeners ah. of last week's intro will know, but uh, <laughs> got a couple of things that, that I'm, I'm reading that I'm excited to release early next year. Um, so it'll be fun mm. to send kind words and endorsements for, for you. Um, but yeah, so, so things are going well. Yeah. Good, good, good. Well, I and I am still I'm so so grateful for your willingness to to read the book and offer an endorsement. And I know you and Sarah Robinson and I have been chatting a little bit about it mm-hmm. and and it's just been fun seeing in connection with some folks who are reading it right now. So it's been a yeah. lot of fun. Yeah. So I the question that I have for you this week, I was thinking about as it related to our chat with our guest who we'll be hearing about in just a bit but have you is there ever a book that you have read that as you were reading it maybe there were some things that you really were like oh this really resonates with me but have you ever read a book that as you read it you're like actually this resonates so much with someone I'm really close to or maybe even Brooke it perhaps but like but like as you're reading it, you are better understanding that loved one that you're thinking of as you're reading the book. Yeah, that's a good question. I I was going to say uh, constantly because I'm always like sending, I know I'm like texting you pictures of books uh-huh. and things all the time where, uh, but that's, you know, I, I love uh, sending things and connecting people and like, you know, this made me think of you stuff, mm-hmm. stuff that people might find helpful or interesting. I'll say one that even kind of was maybe surprising to me. I, we got a book a little while back, and actually, uh, this is what we'll have an upcoming episode about this, um, but it's a book by Dr. Michaela O'Donnell called Make Work mm-hmm. Matter, mm-hmm. and she's talking about kind of the, the shifts in career landscape and and like all of that, um, and she, she dives into like calling and the ways that we um, think weirdly about some of that, um, but like the, the shifts in like the, the work sphere of life and things like that like the these like big tectonic shifts I think mm-hmm. she's putting words to a lot of things that I kind of have a sense of like something has shifted from at one point like oh you go through school and then you get a job and then you like work there 50 years and then you retire and they give you a gold watch or whatever right like mm-hmm. that kind of <laughs> like and that just seems not to be like literally feasible anymore for anyone mm-hmm. um and so and and, and the I think she's putting some some words and like a, a framework around 
what's happening, what has happened, and why maybe a lot of that feel what why like adulting right feels maybe overwhelming mm. for for a lot of a lot of folks, and that obviously for like myself and people kind of around my age, things like that, I know have a lot of that, that kind of sense of, right, like imposter syndrome and everybody Mm. else has it figured out, stuff like that. But then obviously like college students and clients and all of that, right? So I think that's actually been really helpful for me in making sense of like, why is it that we all feel like maybe we're, we're kids kind of faking it and this doesn't, things don't seem to be working the way that we were kind of, it was laid out that they worked, right? Um, In terms Mm. of like, moving into your career and it be, you know, being like a mm-hmm. linear path and things like that. So that's, that's all I'll say about that because we'll, we'll get a chance to hear some specifics of that in a couple of weeks, um, which I'm, I'm really so excited, excited about. That. Yeah, me too. That's one that I've sent you lots of pictures of, of mm-hmm. quotes and stuff. So yep. um, yeah, but, but what about you? Yeah. Well, I mean, I love that, that you, you brought up that um, book in particular, cause I am in the process of reading it right now. So I am excited for us to get to have the author on soon and, and to talk about it. But as far as for me, honestly, you know, I, I asked the question, I know this is like such a, I don't know, it's a, it, it's a segue. So it's, it's what it is, but, um, <laughs> but in all honesty, this book that we're going to be talking about with Marlena Graves, and we talk about a lot of things in this episode with her, but she wrote this book called The Way Up is Down, Becoming Yourself by Forgetting Yourself. And I know that Marlena, you know, she's someone who I identifies with type nine on the Enneagram. Mm-hmm. And there is something about the way that she writes about this book, even though it is not an Enneagram book, the way that she describes this process it has helped me understand nine's experiences and growth and journey in a lot of different ways that I, you know, I wasn't expecting reading this book again, because it, it wasn't an Enneagram book by any means, but like, I do have some nines that I'm really close with um, in my life. And so better understanding kind of their journey through this book was really helpful. So yeah. Anyways, yeah. I mean that's a pretty direct segue, but you know. Um. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm, I mean, we talk with uh, Marlena Graves, and I know this is one that that um, you've been working like the the timing and stuff. Uh, you've been wanting to have her on for a while, um, but we talk like yes. I mentioned right up top about uh, justice and love, how those things intertwine and, and work together from from kind of a Christian perspective. Um, and then we talk about a couple of things from her book, The Way Up is Down, Becoming Yourself by Forgetting Yourself. Um, and Marlena's great. It was a, a great conversation. Mm. Uh, I'll let the, the interview kind of speak for itself in some sense. And um, one thing that, that we do want to know is that we had some technology issues with this particular episode. So if you don't hear, you know, Robert or I like jump in during the conversation as much with like little, you know, random questions or thoughts or comments, that was just because we had some some tech issues. So So we yeah. really had to like let Marlena talk for the whole time. And then she would mute and then we would talk. And so, so anyways, yeah. I guess with that, um, we'll go ahead and get out of the way and uh, let y'all listen in on our conversation with Marlena Graves. All right. Enjoy. Hey, welcome back. So today we have Marlena Graves on the show. She is a writer, a deep thinker, and a speaker who is passionate about the eternal implications of our life in God. 
Marlena received her MDiv from Northeastern Seminary in Rochester, New York, which I love because we've talked about that's my hometown. Um, and she is pursuing her PhD in American Culture Studies at Bowling Green State University, where she's researching the influence American culture has on evangelicals' views of immigration, race, and poverty. Marlena has been on the pastoral staff at several churches. She's worked at nonprofits. She's been on the residence life staff at a university and more. And she has written for a wide variety of venues like Christianity Today's Hermeneutics blog, which is now Christianity Today Women, um, Relevant, Encourage, and the Zondervan uh, Women's St uh, Study Bible. She's also the author of the book that we're going to be discussing today, The Way Up is Down, Becoming Yourself by Forgetting Yourself, and 40 Days on Being a Nine as part of IVP, or I'm sorry, Ivy Press's Enneagram Daily Reflection Series. Marlena, I am so, so, so glad to have you here. I know this is long overdue um, bringing you on the show, but I'm so, so grateful that you're here. And I know that your website bio has a lot of additional layers of just the richness and complexity of who you are and how you show up in the world. So welcome to the show. And is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners about you? Yeah, thank you. I just kind of love how you said Holly richness and complexity about my life because I'm like, I feel like I do a lot of different things, but not really. I've just stayed in the church, the academy and nonprofits, but and writing, of course, my life revolves around those things and different things are highlighted at different seasons of my life. So right now, back in the academy after having been in the church and nonprofits. So thank you so much. I it's just sometimes fun or weird to hear your stuff read and other people's reactions. Absolutely. Well, we are so, so glad to have you here. And I've loved, I mean, transparently, I have loved getting to learn from you over the last few years, especially, and to connect with you. And it really is a gift to have you here on the show today. So Again, you know, this is definitely one of the conversations has been a long time coming. <laughs> I know we, you know, have been trying to figure out a good time and, and I'm just so, again, so grateful to have you here. But I do want to talk and start talking, I guess, first about your book, The Way Up is Down. Um, would you mind starting by telling us a little bit about the backstory behind this book and what inspired you to write it? Yes, of course. I, um... It's the same thing that really inspired my research in this PhD program in American Culture Studies at Bowling Green State University. I don't understand why people who claim to follow Jesus in the United States is the context, the spatial context, are oftentimes the most unjust people. How is it um, people who profess to follow Jesus, why is it that collectively we are I should say a lot of white people, but why is it collectively we are uh, those that are like the robbers and others that beat up the person and leave them by the roadside instead of the good Samaritan that comes and um, binds up the wounds and takes them to the inn or to the hospital or wherever. Um, so I noticed that um I mean, it's been a long time coming in the last decade, obviously with the 2016 election. I've just been around people that aren't necessarily in the church, 
I mean, some people that I'm around are around no Christian. They're not Christians at all. They don't want to be Christians or they've not grown up as Christians. They're not familiar with Christianity at all, except what they see on television and what they've experienced. And usually it has left a bad taste in their mouths. And the other thing is that I, uh, so there's the people that don't, that aren't Christians. And then also I've been around a lot of people that have been hurt by the church. I mean, lots of people of all different ethnicities, um, women, including, and uh, minorities, black, indigenous, and people of color. So I'm like, how, I was asking myself, I wonder how Jesus would live now in this contemporary moment. And of course, I don't have all the answers to everything, but I really wondered um, what it would like look like to live a Christ-like life in this moment. And that um, is what inspired me to write the book. And also kind of the same thing that brought me into a PhD program, as I said earlier. Uh, I love that. And I do have to especially elevate and nod that you are doing that PhD work because it is, it's tough work, but man, I am so glad that you are pursuing your PhD and studying American culture studies. And at Bowling Green, I mean, I have a mentor who's in the psychology department there. It's an incredible university, but, but just these questions that you are bringing to the table for us to be contemplating and thinking through and the ways that you write about them in this book, they're extremely important questions and, and nodding, you know, paying attention to the ways that the church has hurt a lot of folks over the years, I think is, it's, it's good work that you do, Marlena. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, and I, I want to piggyback on that and just kind of maybe amplify just this, the heart of what you do or of what I have learned, um, about you and what I have learned from you in your, your writing within this book, but also your presence on social media and the things that you are working towards and advocating towards. I mean, I know that justice in so many ways is at the heart of so much of what you do, so much of what you write about, and you dovetail it beautifully with love. And I I see that in the book. I see it, how you show up in the world, in the conversations that you and I have had. And so I really wanted to focus on that for just a bit. Can you talk with us about this intersection between love and justice, especially as someone within the Christian tradition that, that you were just talking about a little bit ago in the ways that, that many folks have caused harm. But can you talk a little bit more about this intersection between love and justice and how it shows up in your writing? Yes. Thank you so much. I It's funny today. You can't see my shirt, but I have my favorite shirt on. I wore it to teach today. And it's the quote from Cornell West, which I think he might have gotten from someone else, but I can't remember who it would have been from. But it it's my favorite shirt, My one of my favorite quotes. Justice is what love looks like in public. I'll repeat that one more time. Justice is what love looks like in public. And so how can we, um, justice to people, not only outside of the church, but even within the church, justice is what love. If you want to show love in public, then you live justly, you vote for just laws, you know, structurally and all that. I know you and Robert know all these things. Uh, you know all these things. And I was actually thinking this morning, Holly, as I was driving to class about this shirt, Justice is What Love Looks Like in Public. 
and about I was listening to Pray As You Go, and it was a story of the Good Samaritan. It's, you know, a prayer application. Uh, as I drive to school, I try to do that in the morning or listen to the morning office, the prayers, uh, the church prayers on the way to school and before I teach my class. And I was just thinking, you know, and I actually did tweet something about this today. So I'm going to tell you how this all goes together. So, you know, I, my husband and I were severely mistreated by a uh, fundamentalist wing of uh, the Southern Baptists that took over the school where we were working. And they just didn't like people like me and my husband and lots of other friends that um, this was in 2013 that cared for the poor, were for immigration reform, said stuff about um, racial, just all the racial things that are going on. This was a little, you know, after Trayvon Martin, but it was before Michael Brown in St. Louis. It was before, you know, before George Floyd, all these awful things. So it was before the series of continually explosive things, but for African-Americans and other people of color and the indigenous this has been American history for them. But in the public's eye, oh, this is all in our times. This is new, but it's never stopped. <laughs> um, actually, if you look throughout history, because that's what I'm studying. And so they just didn't like people like me. It was like a microcosm of the 2016 election. And it wasn't just about me. Um, they wanted to take the church back for or the school back because they thought there was theological drift, which I'm like, OK, justice is theological drift. Do you read your Bible? You who claim to read the Bible. And it's very interesting to me. One of my favorite things about this, that justice is this, that the word justice and the word righteousness come from the same root. They're basically the same thing in scripture, righteousness and justice. So when you say the righteous person will do this, that, and the other, the Bible says, you know, uh, you know, love, what is love, justice, uh, Micah 6, 8, Mercy, righteousness. I actually haven't looked at that verse. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I, or Hebrew scholar, but other people have told me the same thing. I've looked it up once or twice in my life here. But righteousness and justice go together. So you cannot be a right righteous person if you are not just. And and we would say as Christians, if you're going to be a just person, you have to be righteous. Obviously, all truth is God truth, and there's plenty of people that aren't Christians that are more just <laughs> than uh, people. Uh, who profess to follow Jesus. So um, so that's where love comes in. I was just thinking, that, so I was thinking this morning as I was listening to all this, and I knew I'd be talking to you guys here, but I was thinking, you know, it would be such a just and righteous thing here in the United States that Christians would be the leaders at the forefront of like avoiding voter suppression, doing whatever they can do to uh, work against voter suppression that's happening here in the United States um, because people don't want African-Americans and people of color to vote because they don't like how they tend to vote. And so wouldn't it be righteous and just to make sure that every person got a vote? Isn't that justice? And why aren't Christians at the forefront of that? And that's kind of a civic thing, but Wherever Christians went, for good or for ill, they affected politics and the outcome. Now, people used to say, you know, you don't get involved in politics or don't talk about religion and politics. Well, that's kind of gone out the window in our in these days, right? People talk both about religion and, and politics. 
in polite society, I guess, and in impolite society. And so I would like to be known. I would like Christians to be known. And, and in my studies, I'm having, having to tell you there is a separation between like white evangelical and Protestants and maybe indigenous people and black people and Latino, Latina, Latin people. There's a separation, not to say that people in those groups don't do wrong or harm, but uh, the white Christians have been in power for since the founding of our country. And I've seen so much harm. This was what makes my studies exceedingly difficult because the just Christian as a collective group, the, the white Christians in power, collectively, rare to see justice and righteousness and love. Usually it's putting down people because as so I'm sure you've talked about many times on this podcast and has been talked about because politics and um, power come before following Christ. And I also think, as Jesus said, you can only only serve God and or money. And I think a lot of times here in America, Christians serve money. I know that sounds really strong, but I'm just sharing what I've been thinking about. So oh, that's that's so good. I I so appreciate so much of what you're saying already, especially at this this intersection between justice and love. And to our listeners, they you know normally they'll hear Robert and I chime in with like mm, or yes, that's you know or just little commentary to to bolster you know, things that you're saying and just for our listeners. So they know, um, we're just having some, some technology, uh, hiccups today. And so, so that's why you're not hearing us like, uh, make the little random <laughs> noises of affirmation. Um, but Marlena is seeing all my comments, hopefully on the side, um, of where I'm in agreement with things that she's saying. And, uh, just, just, gosh, I so appreciate so much of what you're saying around this intersection, um, especially, you know, as a Christian and as a social worker, um, you know, I just, I, I just really appreciate how you are able to so candidly speak to the things that need to be elevated and spoken. And so, so I, I really appreciate that Marla, Marlena. Yeah. I, so I, I love what you're saying so far. And like Holly was saying over in the, the chat box, there's lots of, you know, yes, yes, and things like that. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, right, as we, if if a listener says, okay, I'm uh, I'm used to maybe the way that I've seen it kind of presented is more of an individualistic, like righteousness type thing. And we're saying, okay, look, actually, there's kind of a, a shifting of righteousness equal sign, or at least like overlaps hugely or like is not possible without the like justice of working for each other, the kind of like community systemic type thing, right? How, how can we engage really well in that? Um, and then I would be curious, you know, your thoughts on how they intersect with both our, our faith and maybe our, our mental health or our well-being as well. Well, thank you, Robert. You know, I will defer to the expert professors here on mental health. So forgive me if I you can correct me if I say something that's off, okay? Because this is where you know more than I do. You know what? I actually think if people were honest with themselves, they would know that their faith and justice have always intersected. I mean, at least people born in, let's say, from 1970 onward, because people have been publicly protesting Roe versus Wade, um, well, the Catholics were in 1973, actually. Evangelical Christians were not until later, but that's another story. 
anyhow, but they have been since the mid evangelicals, white evangelicals since the mid seventies, you know, write your senators, you know, a, a lot of them raise money for crisis pregnancy centers, write your school board. Cause you don't want evolution taught in your schools or I'm just trying to think of anything, you know, right now it is um, people are like, uh, really campaigning not to have critical race theory or comprehensive sex education in the public schools, Christians. And so to say that this is something new is not true. It's just when people talk about race or, you know, other things, uh, critical race theory or whatever, then it's like uh, public engagement. No, we've been publicly engaging as uh, evangelicals and voting for some, you know, and I'm not, I'm not just talking to evangelicals, but I, so forgive me. All I am talking right now about that group, because that's what I know the best. And that's what I was studying. But um, so th- it's nothing new. And the reason why people engage, right? People that, people that are like, I am pro-life. So I uh, not, I know not all Evangelicals or all Christians feel this way, for sure I know this, but a lot of them feel like, you know, you know, life starts at conception. Okay. And so I'm not saying again, nothing that any of your listeners or that you don't know. But people engage publicly, they protest, they do this, that, or the other to further that they pay lobbyists, ex, you know, a thousand things that they do. Or, you know, they might give food to food pantries because um, people are hungry. That's good. You know, you're, you're, you're living out what you believe on a personal level. And as far as like anti-abortion on a more structural level, but justice doesn't just have to do with a woman carrying the baby, a person carrying the baby. It has to do with, you know, what happens to that child after the child is born. And this is where, a lot of people fall short, not all. Some people adopt and they're really good about that. But let me tell you something. I had a student tell me last week, she, we were talking about abortion and she said to me, she didn't call me Marlena, right? She's like, professor, she, she just offered this herself. She's like, I had an abortion and I had talked to my boyfriend about it and we both agreed it's the thing to do because I cannot be in school here right now or have money to raise that child. And my parents were protesting the abortion. And so she said to her parents, she's like, okay, are you going to come over and watch the babies? Are you going to pay for the hospital bill? Cause I'm going to need you to babysit all the time. And I'm going to need help with uh, bills and raising that child. Cause my boyfriend and I simply cannot do that. And, you know, I'm teaching at a state university. Remember I'm not, you know, at a Christian school or anything. So, I mean, I'm glad I, I told her, thank you so much for trusting us with this information. We're honored that you shared that with us because I didn't ask people if they had abortions. That was not the question I asked in class. She offered this on her own. And, you know, uh, that's kind of the, um, that's the bent of a lot of people that I'm hearing. They're like, okay, if you care about children, then put up or shut up after they're born. Okay. Cause if you're not going to do anything, if you're not going to vote for laws that give mothers more welfare and fathers more welfare, if you're not going to do any of that, shut up. I mean, that sounds really harsh, but the public does not have an ear for people who do not practice what they preach, okay? Because it's more than just legislation. Now, to Robert's question about mental health and justice, I mean, 
I can think of, you know, for so long, it was difficult for people to say, hey, I'm depressed or I'm suicidal or I have bipolar or, you know, name any other of the mental health issues. There was a lot of shame surrounding that. And I know you've talked about that. Um, And I think justice would mean that, I mean, first of all, people with mental health issues are not shamed. Number one, they should not be. And there's a lot of good work around that. And number two, that uh, people with mental health issues or struggles should get the uh, assistance they need. I would say they should get government help because one person, one family cannot pay for all the um, the medical bills, the everything that comes with the treatment from uh, to, to address mental health issues. There's a lot of people that cannot get mental health help because they can't afford a counselor. And so I tell the students at my school, probably would you tell my yours, if you are a student here, please use the count, avail yourself to the counseling office because when you get out of here, you're going to have to pay out of pocket. Of course, they're paying to attend school, but they're going to have to pay, you know, whatever is charged if they don't have insurance. Even if they do have insurance, they're going to have to pay. And I, I guess I'll wrap it up with this. Um, thinking about Robert's question, I have people in my family, uh, uh, not my immediate family, but family members that, you know, have P- had PTSD from the Vietnam War. Um, that had a lot of mental health issues. They could not get help. These are veterans that could not get help because they couldn't afford it. And so we have veterans and all sorts of people on the street with mental health issues that do not get the help they need. And I think that's an issue of justice. And I'm not sure if I hit it, Robert, from the angle you were wanting, but that's what I thought, given your question. No, that's that's so good. Um, I, I mean, so, so much of what you said, I mean, just... Uh, paying attention to these different areas of justice and injustice and even circling back to, you know, what Robert had asked about with regard to um, mental health treatment being a justice issue. Like I would wholeheartedly agree with that. I know we're recording this during, um, I think this is uh, Mental Health Awareness Week. And, you know, and, and we do know that there are a lot of folks who do not get the care they need. In fact, we know that it, it's on average about 11 years before somebody has goes from having um, symptoms of mental illness to actually getting the treatment that they need. Like that's 11 years. Oh my word. Yeah, it's it's quite a stretch. And so anyway, so we would agree with you 100% on, on this being a justice issue. Um, but I do, I do, I would love to, so I'm going to kind of build on that and, and bring us back a little bit to your book, to The Way Up is Down. And just, you know, just to share a little bit with our readers, I know this book is not focused necessarily on like, it's not necessarily focused on like a self-abnegation and like disregarding who you are and who God made you, but finding ways to you know, like the first chapter is self-emptying and finding ways in which we can think about how to think less of ourselves and think more of God and how we live our lives as an act of prayer. Um, and each of these chapters really walk the reader through that. I would love to, gosh, there's so many, I have, I have so many tabs in this right now that I'm... <laughs> trying to like sift through and find where I want to be going. Well, I'm going to jump to one of my favorite chapters in this book, which um, 
is called um, Memento Mori. And I think I had texted you about this, Marlena, after I read it. I mean, I loved it so much. I literally circled the chapter, Aww, like yeah. at the top of the chapter <laughs> when I when I had read it. But what I would love to do, I would love for you to talk a little bit about kind of just about this chapter in general, about what this phrase means, and then like, how do we live into this practice? Okay, so this memento mori, it's a spiritual practice that's been part of the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Church, right? The churches before they split, before a Protestant uh, split off of Roman Catholicism here in the West, ancient practice to remember your death. Um, it doesn't want us to be morbid, but if you know that life is short, that life is fragile, that you can go at any moment, you're going to live a certain way. And I've always had, I don't know why, maybe it's because, you know, I don't know. And again, here's your the social workers coming out here. Um, you know, I had a difficult life growing up. I grew up poor. It was kind of um, chaotic in my household for a little while. I think my parents were dealing with their own mental health issues when they're now looking back. I'm like, they were probably in their 30s and early 40s, you know, about the age, a lot of like, I shouldn't say a lot, the age that I am now not early 30s, more 40, but um, they were trying to figure their lives out. They never abused me or anything like that, but it was very difficult growing up. And um, I don't know if that's why, but from as young as I can remember, I like, even four years old, I knew that there was more to life than what I saw. I remember thinking that. And I always, you know, almost every day of my life, I've said to myself, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Not because I want to die. You know, I, that's not what I'm thinking, but I know I'm going to die. Um, and what do I want of my life in this short life that I have? You know, my mom just died on June 27th, uh, 2021. And, you know, uh, well, I don't know if any of you all knew Rachel Held Evans. Um, you know, I knew her from writing and stuff. You know, she died at 37. And just a bunch of people I knew, young people, I can name a lot of people that are were in like Christian journalism or writing and even some people that have taken their life, you know, this year. A lot of people have been dying so much so that my daughter said the other day, because uh, I told her, um, you know, someone someone died. She's like, Mom, a lot of people, you know, are dying. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, maybe it's just I didn't say this to her, but I thought it to myself. You know, maybe I'm getting to the point in my life where just a lot of people around me are dying. My daughters noticed that. Um, you know, one, it was one of the students that we had died. There was a train wreck, an Amtrak train wreck in, um, Mon, I think it was in Montana, Amtrak train wreck, and he died. He was like, what, 27? We had him in school, you know? Three people died, and he was one of them. Uh, so that was like last week or a week and a half ago. And so I think if we live remembering that we're going to die, then it will help us prioritize our lives, you know, not – I don't think we'd be as superficial. And so when I think about the fact that I'm going to die at some point, I wonder if my life is a blessing or curse to other people, to my own family, for sure. Because I don't want to say something on social media, my books that I'm not living. Now, I don't live perfectly, but I don't feel like I can write well if I'm living contrary to what I'm writing. Okay, so I try to live it out, obviously not perfectly, but uh, with within my family, with those I know the, the most. And so I want to be a blessing to my family, to my daughters, to my husband, brothers and sisters, parents, and to everyone around me, not a curse. 
So I don't want people to think, hey, when they think of Marlena or hear about me, think, oh my gosh, I want to turn around and run the other way. I can't stand being around that person, that lady. I want to be a blessing in small ways. Again, it prioritizes this. So it also keeps me from like, I think, chewing people out or running over them, raking them over when I'm angry on social media, because I know that once words are out of my mouth, I cannot control uh, the outcome, especially angry words. Um, so I try to be angry and sin not on social media, though I do get very angry as we talked earlier about the things that I'm studying. And so I'm always asking God, like, why did you give me this information? It would be really nice if I could just be somebody that was just like oblivious to all this and have my head like an ostrich in the sand. I think my life would be a lot easier, Lord, but that's not the life that I've been given. And so um, that's how I have to live. So that's kind of um, what I was thinking about, Holly. Oh, that's, that's so good. Yeah. I, I hear you on those times and seasons where you're like, gosh, I wish I, you know, could unsee this, or I wish that I, you know, wasn't uh, hyper aware of some of these things that were happening, but, um, but, but also knowing how to, to steward that awareness in a way that better serves others, empowers others, prevents certain things from repeating, things like that. And I do, I mean, I, I don't know. I experience you in a very loving, gracious, you know, that anger is there, but it's there for all of us for different reasons and in different seasons. And I just appreciate how you show up in the world, Marlena. Thank you so much. I appreciate that too. And you, you both too. Oh, thank you. Um, well, I'll, I want, there is one quote that I would love to pull just from this, this section where, you write, um, memento morying, if I may use that term, is living and seeing through the brevity of life lens. A memento mori posture allows us to more constantly glimpse the ripe, full, and perfect moments, to live steeped in kairos time, to live God's priorities rightly. We remember we are human instead of superhuman. We live within the bounds of our limits, even within breakneck speed cultures. We don't take life for granted. Little moments produce great joy in the midst of our sufferings and difficulties. Paradoxically, remembering our deaths allow allows for much more joy in the little things. And I, I just, I mean, I know that this is, can be a heavy topic, and you know, death is, you know, it, it's imminent for each of us, um, and those that we love too. Um, and so it is a heavy and hard topic, but I think the way that you write about it in this chapter is a beautiful reminder to, um, to really recognize the good when the good is there and yeah. And the sacred as it shows up. So I, yeah. And then you, and then the, your next chapter is focused on gratitude and contentment and I don't know. I, I mean, I could go on and on about this entire book <laughs> and I, and I'm, I, I am going to encourage our listeners to definitely um, pick up this book and um, to actually check it out. But I do, I'd love to hear, I know if it's okay. Um, I would love to hear from you a little bit in thinking about our listeners in general. So you know, we have largely faith leaders and mental health care providers and those who are navigating or who love someone navigating a mental health struggle. And so as you think about those folks who are listening to this episode, what is it that you hope that they would take away from this book? Yeah, well, um, I definitely have been that person um, as a family member, caregiver for 
people navigating mental health struggles. And, you know, every now and then I have my own, right? So going back to what the quote that you read, uh, Memento Mori, just happened to pick that out. Um, you know, we're the type of people that wish we could fix things. We will, you know, give our the shirts off of our back to help people because that's why we're in these professions. I mean, even if you're not in one of these what they call helping professions, you're still, you still care. You're listening to this podcast. And um, I had to really, uh, you know, I, I write about this in my first book, A Beautiful Disaster, Finding Hope in the Midst of Brokenness. But my husband, Sean, has said it to me at some times, like, Marlene, you need to stop because what else can you do? You can't, like, if you go down, then, you know, we're all going down and you're not helping that person, you know, that family member that you're caring about. And so, you know, I have the tendency, like I will go to the furthest to help people if I can within my means, you know, my family members, but others, anyone, I'll do what I can to help you. But I, again, I'm not saying anything you don't know. I'm just repeating it. Just having, just having boundaries. Cause we're not super, superhuman. Like, you know, and I know when we're starting to get tired, when we're starting to get a burnout, like if I'm irritated, I know that, you know, I need to check myself because why am I irritated all the time? Or do I snap at my children or my husband or so I'm like, okay, I'm not superhuman. I have to say no a lot, especially now that I'm in my program. Like I'm not involved in my church like I was. I used to, you know, lead small groups, whatever. I'm like, I have to step away because I can't lead a small group. I will resent the fact that I'm leading a small group or whatever if I'm in my PhD program. So, um, you know, I had to step away from that. And that was hard for me because I, you know, I've been involved in the church and community for years. The other thing I would say is, um, you know, so keeping your boundaries and always, always, always ask for help. You know, I always think, you know, AA is the best. The church should be like AA, you know, confess your sins, repentance, and talk to trusted others. Now, you might not know the trusted other person, but I would say if you're someone caring for someone else or you're in that kind of job or you're in a stressful situation, you cannot do it by yourself. Um, the only reason I've made it I think in my life is because um, I've had people like my husband, pastors and other people that I can go to um, and just say, hey, I'm not doing well. You know, I call it dialing 911. You know, <laughs> I need to dial 911 um, figuratively, call a friend, call a pastor, call so someone saying I need you to take me to the hospital. Right. The, and now that might be a literal hospital. Right. It might be. Or like, I need to go into the spiritual, emotional hospital. I need help because I can't do this on my own. Um, I'm a very, I guess I'm a very weak person in that way. I need help all the time. <laughs> so, uh, but I definitely could have made it in any sort of a way without help. And so that's what I would say. Yeah. And I, I just to, you know, I don't think that makes you a weak person. I think we all need help all the time. And that's, that's just human, right? We do, uh, before we uh, wrap up, I know we're getting close to time, but we would love to give you a, a little bit of space here to, to hear about your 40 days of being a nine book. So um, do you want to tell us just a little bit about that and uh, give our readers just a, a little bit of sense of, of what that book would be like? Yeah, thanks, Robert. And thank you for the good word on being a weak person. I think I was just um, answering people, you know, in our culture that say, oh, come on, 
you know, buckle up your bootstraps, pull up your bootstraps and handle it, you know? So yes, yeah. I agree that we all need, we all need help. And, and I'll, I'll be the first one to say that. Um, the 40 a day is, as a nine, um, Enneagram daily reflections, you know, um, I've had finished writing the way up is down and I was doing my final revisions, you know, what little final revisions and, um, InterVarsity asked me to write this other book. I didn't like uh, pitch it to them. They asked me to write it because they knew that I was an Enneagram nine and I'm not an Enneagram nine guru, but I mean, an Enneagram guru, but I, I know a lot about being a nine. Um, and so I approach this book kind of the way I've approached this conversation. And like I said earlier to you and Holly and to those listening that I think the church should be like AA. Now I don't tell everybody. Um, I don't tell everybody like my deepest, darkest thoughts or brightest thoughts for that matter. But I try to be um, wise about who I tell what, but I thought in approaching this book, I need to tell the truth about nines, what our weaknesses are, how that might manifest in my life. Uh, if you are a nine or know someone that is a nine on the Enneagram. And so the way I approach the book is from telling the truth. And when they asked me to write it, I was like, oh, man, I tried to like start writing it a little bit detached, as detached as I can be. And I'm like, this is not going to work. Because I knew that I'm going to have to say stuff that I was like not proud of, you know, things that I, you know, I, I want to put a good image out there, don't I? We all have that. So something I shouldn't say that. But I, I just I was like, oh, my, this is so, you know, whatever. So I approached the book by telling the truth. Um, I didn't want people to think less of me. You know, you kind of go through all that mental gymnastics with should I really write this publicly? And um, so that's how I approached the book. And there's like 40 uh, devotionals, like 40 days, short ones. And it really took a lot from out of me. It's a very short book. And it was the hardest book to write, I think. And it's not that I wasn't honest in the way up is down. I was honest in that too, but I could, it wasn't the way up is down wasn't just focused on me. <laughs> this other was more of a reflection on me, my life with God and life with other people as a nine. So that was it. And that's, kind of the background of that book. Oh, I love that. I love hearing a bit about the background because I'm literally holding it in my hand right now because I had gotten it as a gift for for my husband and who identifies as a type nine. <laughs> but I think I actually really want to read it just to, I mean, I always love learning a little bit more about the layers that make him who he is. And so to be able to understand the type nine experience from your perspective as I try to better understand him. I just, yeah, I think I'm going to, I am adding this to beside my nightstand to be reading soon. So thank you, Marlena. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Well, listener, if you'd like to connect with Marlena, you can find her at marlenagraves.com or on any social media at Marlena Graves. Um, you could order her book, The The Way Up is Down, Becoming Yourself by Forgetting Yourself, or uh, 40 Days on Being a Nine, wherever you buy your books. You can connect with Robert at robert-bohr.com or on any social media at Robert Bohr, or you could connect with me at hollyoxhandler.com or on any social media at hollyoxhandler. Marlena, thank you so, so much for coming on the show and being willing to talk with us about these books. Do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners? 
No, just to say I'm really grateful. And I think in this podcast, you certainly saw the nine wing eight come out. So <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMHpodcast at gmail.com. A final note. If you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.